You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. We're going to continue in this lecture the discussion of the common good. As promised at the end of the first part, we are now going to look at Vatican II's Declaration on Religious Liberty, a speech that John Paul gave at the UN in October of 1995. And then we're going to try to reflect on the reasons why Catholic social teaching has, in fact, teaching on the common good. In the Declaration on Religious Liberty of Vatican II, we find several statements that further clarify the meaning of the common good and the nature of the government's responsibility toward the political community. In this document, Vatican Council II declares that all people have a right to religious freedom and recognizes the right of all churches and religious communities to immunity from coercion in what concerns religious belief, worship, practice or observance, public testimony, and the internal autonomy of the church itself. The Council states that the freedom of the church, quote, is the fundamental principle in what concerns the relations between the church and government and the whole political order, end quote. The government's role, according to Dignitatis Humanae, to make religious freedom a civil right by the appropriate constitutional guarantees. It does not have the power to command or inhibit the performance of religious acts by individuals or associations. Of course, it cannot prescribe or proscribe religious belief or forms of worship, nor can the government require attendance in a school from which all religion is excluded or force children to attend any kind of religious instruction which is contrary to their religious beliefs. What the government can and should do through laws and other suitable means is, quote, to ensure favorable conditions for fostering religious life, end quote. The Council Fathers go so far as to say that civil authority should certainly recognize and promote the religious life of its citizens as a way of providing for the temporal common good of the political community. Because of government action, people will be able to exercise their religious rights, observe duties, and as a result, society itself will benefit from the goods of justice and peace, which result from people's fidelity to God and his holy will. Number six in the Declaration on Religious Liberty. Now, this is the second time I have quoted this passage from the Declaration on Religious Liberty. Now, since Dignitatis Humanae, or the Declaration on Religious Liberty, affirms that the common good of society especially consists in the protection of the human person's rights and the observance of duties, then the fulfillment of duties is an integral part of the common good. The Declaration doesn't make clear exactly what the government could or should do to promote conditions favorable to religion. One could argue persuasively that the government cannot fulfill its responsibilities toward religion without promoting a public morality, including the practice of various virtues. A legally enforced public morality sets a tone in a society 
and a culture that facilitates the development and preservation of faith in the life of citizens. At the very least, the government should not be neutral toward religion, but convey in various ways that it is important for the well-being of the regime. If the state is indifferent to religion, argues Ernest Fortin, chances are that most of its citizens will be indifferent as well. As things stand in American liberal democracy, the state often claims to provide a neutral framework within which each individual is allowed to choose his own goal and find his own way to it. When the state denies religion any intrinsic claim to respect, people have difficulty in living up to the stringent demands of their faith, especially when those demands are countercultural. Toward the end of the Declaration, the Council Fathers do introduce the concept of public morality as a part of the public order, which also includes the effective protection and peaceful harmonizing of the rights of the citizens and a sufficient care of an honorable public peace, which is an ordered living together in true justice. Then the text says that these three constitute a fundamental part of the common good, and they come under the rubric of the public order. So, if the common good of a society requires a public morality and citizens living together in true justice, then instrumental goods cannot constitute the whole of the common good. There has to be a sharing in substantive goods. There are still other indications that the Council is recommending a substantive common good for society. In speaking of education, the Vatican document urges all and especially those who have charge of educating others to do their utmost to form people who, while respecting the moral order, obey legitimate authority and are lovers of genuine liberty. In making this exhortation, the Vatican Council does not distinguish between public and private authorities. All educators are expected to form character in a way that is appropriate to their position. All the educated are expected to use their own judgment to make decisions in the light of truth. The Council also expresses the hope that religious freedom, therefore, ought to have this further purpose and aim, namely that people act with greater responsibility in fulfilling their duties in community life. Finally, the Council says, among those things which concern the good of the church and indeed the good of the earthly city, this certainly is preeminent, that the church enjoys so much liberty as caring for the salvation of all requires. What the church does for the salvation of all is the preeminent contribution to the common good of civil society. This reminds me of a leitmotif of John Paul's social teaching. Remember the phrase he uttered in Mexico, we will reach justice through evangelization. In other words, civil society cannot achieve the common good unless individuals are good. It is the work of evangelization that forms individuals according to the mind and heart of Christ. I think of Thomas More's Utopia, you know, the famous saint martyred by Henry VIII. At the end of the one part of the Utopia, he says, justice in society will not be attained unless individuals are good. The state, of course, doesn't do the work of evangelization, but as we have seen, it should favor religious life so that the church can fulfill its proper mission. 
Only if the church is successful in its work will the state have a chance of realizing the common good. The state is not limited to providing instrumental goods for the church, but prepares the way for the work of the church by upholding various moral norms through the laws. It is also true that favoring the religious life of citizens is not an instrumental good. If the state limited itself to the promotion of instrumental goods, it would be neutral toward the churches and the practice of religion. Now I'm going to turn now to that speech by John Paul II that he gave in October of 1995 at the United Nations. It would also be appropriate to treat Evangelium at Vitae at this moment, the Gospel of Life, but I will do that in a subsequent lecture. It was shortly after the publication of Evangelium Vitae that John Paul delivered this justly well-known address at the United Nations on October 5th, 1995. Now, he certainly did not use this occasion to tell the nations of the world that they could achieve the common good of their political community simply by providing instrumental goods to their citizens. Instead, he directs his listeners' attention to the limitations of modern autonomy as a sufficient guide for individual and political life by suggesting that people build a civilization of love founded on the universal goods of peace, solidarity, justice, and liberty. And the soul of the civilization of love is the culture of freedom, the freedom of individuals and the freedom of nations lived in self-giving solidarity and responsibility. The Pope especially focuses on the problem posed by freedom in the modern world. Midway through the speech, he pauses for effect by formally addressing the audience. He says, quote, ladies and gentlemen, the basic question which we all must face today is the responsible use of freedom, both in its personal and social dimensions. Detached from the truth about the human person, freedom deteriorates into license in the lives of individuals, and in political life, it becomes the caprice of the most powerful and the arrogance of power." End quote. When freedom takes its bearings by truth, the result is order in the soul as well as the civilization of love and solidarity. In the past 19 years, the Pope has spoken often and passionately of solidarity. And on social concern, he defines it as a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. That is to say, to the good of all and of each individual because we are all really responsible for all, end quote. He goes on to describe solidarity as a Christian virtue which inclines individuals to overcome sources of division within themselves and in society. Structures of sin and personal sins in which the sinful structures are rooted cause disorder in the soul and disunity in society. Order in the soul, of course, requires the practice of all the virtues. Toward the end of this speech, John Paul II emphasizes that the church must promote solidarity in addition to proposing her message of salvation. The church asks only, he says, to be able to propose respectfully this message of salvation and to be able to promote in charity and service the solidarity of the entire human family. In this speech to the nations of the world, John Paul quite appropriately doesn't explain that the church's work for the salvation of all peoples 
necessarily promote solidarity within and among nations. It is also fitting that John Paul II doesn't explicitly say how radical his vision of solidarity is for liberal regimes. He is actually inviting people to be morally transformed in order to be capable of solidarity. The moral transformation of citizens is then an essential part of the common good. And why does John Paul II say that the church desires the freedom both to deliver the message of salvation and to promote solidarity among people in every nation? If he just spoke of salvation, people might not realize that the church is interested in promoting the temporal common good of society. Not everyone realizes that the evangelization of peoples in view of salvation will promote the moral transformation of citizens and solidarity in civil society in the measure that people are willing to receive and live the truth proclaimed to them. Solidarity is a word that suggests connections among citizens in any civil society, even solicitude for one another. By using the word solidarity, the Pope is exhorting people to direct the practice of the virtues toward the realization of the common good. I think there is still another reason for the distinction that John Paul draws between salvation and solidarity or the common good. Resting in God alone with other human beings is the highest common good. The common good of the political community prepares and disposes individuals for the attainment of such a lofty goal. It is then a subordinate common good, which takes various shapes in different sectors of society. For example, it is helpful to speak of the common good of families, associations, cities, and the nation. The very beginning of Vatican II's Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution on the church, has a powerful statement on the centrality of the highest common good in the life of the church. Quote, by her relationship with Christ, the church is a kind of sacrament of intimate union with God and of the unity of all mankind. That is, she is a sign and instrument of such union and unity, end quote. In other words, the church's mission of salvation is to help people seek and achieve forgiveness of their sins so that they might be free for greater and greater union with God and with one another through Christ. The church will carry out this salvific work in whatever regime she happens to find herself. No person properly seeks salvation for himself alone. He wants all people to share his liberation from sin and his union with God. To affirm the primacy of the highest common good is to desire that all human beings participate in the life of God and that all are united in that participation. To will the end is to will the means. Therefore, those desirous of salvation pray that everyone's trespasses will be forgiven and that all live virtuously in the eyes of God. You know, think of the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses. We pray that everybody's trespasses will be forgiven. We don't ask that our own trespasses alone should be forgiven. Now, it may seem ironic that seeking God is the highest common good leads to the greatest respect for the dignity of every human person. That dignity consists not in simply having reason and the power of choice, but in actually reaching God through the practice of the Christian virtues. So respecting people's dignity is to pray and work for their salvation, not just to respect their rights. 
The whole message of salvation proclaimed by the church teaches people that as parts of a whole, they are ordered to the greatest of all goods. And while the church will always be successful in helping individuals to achieve salvation or the highest common good, it can only reasonably hope to be partially successful in transforming society. There may or may not be a critical mass of transformed individuals to have a noticeable effect on the structures or institutions of society. What success the church has in getting a hearing for its message of salvation may not be enough to be that visible in society. Besides, visible transformations of society are never definitively possessed and can be lost for a time or indefinitely. But St. Augustine is right on the mark in holding that a significant Christian impact is always possible in society. Let those who say that the teaching of Christ is contrary to the Republic give us an army of the sort of soldiers that the teaching of Christ commands. Let them give us such provincial subjects, such husbands, wives, parents, children, masters, servants, kings, judges, and finally such taxpayers and collectors of public taxes of the sort commanded by Christian teaching. And then let them dare to say that this teaching is contrary to the Republic. Indeed, let them even hesitate to confess that it is, if observed, a great benefit for the Republic. End quotation. If Christian teaching is observed, then great benefits ensue. There are no guarantees that the teaching of Christ will be widely accepted. The idea of inevitable progress is alien to Christian doctrine. The end of the political community is to establish a suitable order by aiming at a subordinate common good. We have seen that John XXIII's definition of the common good is not understood by him or Vatican II's Gaudium et Spes and the Declaration of Religious Liberty to be simply a list of instrumental goods. Pope John Paul's The Gospel of Life shows familiarity with John XXIII's thought, and yet it still argues that a society needs more than instrumental goods to achieve its common good. John Paul's speech to the UN offers helpful guidance by distinguishing the church's mission of salvation from her work to promote solidarity. Now I'd like to turn to the reason for a Catholic teaching on the common good. Before attempting to offer a summary description of a subordinate common good, I would like to address the question, why does the church even have a teaching on the common good of the political community? The answer to that question is not complicated. Since good laws and mores dispose people to receive Christian teaching and live a Christian life, and bad laws and mores do the opposite, the church attempts to persuade political communities to establish and maintain good laws and mores, or in the language of classical political philosophy, a good regime. Pius XII made this point in that 1941 Pentecost message in which he says that the church, quote, must take cognizance of social conditions which, whether one wills it or not, make difficult or practically impossible a Christian life in conformity with the precepts of the divine lawgiver, end quote. He says that people need to breathe the healthy, vivifying atmosphere of truth and moral virtue and not the disease-laden and often fatal air of error and corruption. As a precedent and proof of his position, Pius XII cites Leo XIII's encyclical to the world, Rerum Navarum, which pointed out the dangers of the materialist socialism conception and the fatal consequences of economic liberalism, so often unaware or forgetful or contemptuous of social duties. Around the same time that Pius XII was thinking about the significance of social conditions for the faith, a famous French theologian, Yves de Montchoy, 
addressed the same subject in an essay entitled Christian Life and Temporal Action. He wrote, the repercussions of political and social conditions in the lives of individuals can in fact render easier or more difficult the birth and development of religious life in humanity. It is therefore the duty of the Christian to create in this world conditions favorable to Christian life. He also told his readers that Rerum Navarum reminded Catholics of this obligation. Monshoi and Pius XII clearly do not limit their understanding of social conditions to instrumental goods. They have to be talking about substantive elements of the common good. The second reason for the church's social teaching is that the realization of a subordinate common good is a partial expression of the way human beings ought to live together. The dignity of the human person not only requires freedom for each individual, but a life dedicated to the practice of virtue and harmony among people based on truth. As mentioned, a recovery of the concept of regime as elaborated in the political philosophy of Plato and Aristotle would clarify the deep impact that social conditions have on the minds and hearts of citizens. The regime or politeia is the whole political and social order. Leo Strauss's explanation of what the classical political philosophers meant by regime is succinct and revealing. He says, quote, the cause of the laws is the regime. Therefore, the guiding theme of political philosophy is the regime rather than the laws. Regime is the order, the form, which gives society its character. Regime is therefore a specific manner of life. Regime is the form of life as living together, the manner of living of society and in society. Since this manner depends decisively on the predominance of human beings of a certain type, on the manifest domination of society by human beings of a certain type. Regime means that whole which we today are in the habit of viewing primarily in a fragmentized form. Regime, which means simultaneously the form of life of society, its style of life, its moral taste, form of society, form of state, form of government, spirit of laws, end quote. In this perspective, the regime has a crucial influence on the lives of most individuals. Only the few can escape its pervasive influence. With the emergence of Christianity, the regime is no longer necessarily as decisive in the lives of individuals. God's word and grace mediated through a faithful church can be wholeheartedly embraced even in the midst of bad regimes. Yet experience shows that many Christians are unduly influenced by the negative aspects of the culture and the social conditions. Hence the importance of church teaching on a substantive common good, even if subordinate and incomplete. By way of conclusion, I will offer a few suggestions for amplifying the Catechism's definition of the common good, which you will recall reads, the sum total of the conditions of social life which allow people, either as groups or individuals, to reach their own perfection more fully and more easily. I would add to this definition the following sentence or something to this effect. The perfection of each citizen is the goal of civil society and is therefore an essential part of the common good. Next, I would attempt to describe in summary fashion the kind of social conditions helpful for the pursuit of perfection. Then I would point out that establishing the requisite social conditions and educating individuals to perfection are the shared responsibility of government, the church, voluntary associations, and individuals themselves. When the principle of subsidiarity is observed, there is less chance of improper intrusion on the part of the government and more chance of success 
in the combined efforts to achieve the common good. The term perfection does not, of course, have a univocal meaning, especially in a liberal society. Catholics would necessarily understand perfection as the imitation of Jesus Christ, but would recognize other religious and philosophical understandings of perfection as a preparation for or partial realization of the way taught by Jesus. Some understandings of perfection would surely be at odds with the Catholic view. Be that as it may, Catholics are always bound by the ideal of Christian perfection and would rely on the family, church, educational institutions, other voluntary associations, and the law to promote perfection as they understand it. What the law could and should achieve in a liberal society will always be subject for debate, in which Catholics have the right and duty to participate. In accordance with their understanding of the common good, Catholics would also support efforts by individuals, voluntary associations, and the government to promote sound but incomplete understandings of perfection. The social conditions which allow people to reach their proper perfection may at first glance seem too difficult to name or describe. Perfection is not a common term in a liberal society. Citizens and theorists would more readily speak of social conditions conducive to the attainment or preservation of liberty and equality. The attainment of perfection would require a special set of social conditions hardly limited to instrumental goods. According to Catholic social teaching, some of these social conditions are as follows. Religious freedom, the fidelity of the Catholic Church to its salvific mission, fidelity in marriages, sound family life, character education in families and schools, comprehensive liberal education in the universities, high ethical principles in the trades, business, and the professions, true friendships, concord or harmony among citizens, forgiveness of injuries, and reconciliation among citizens who have committed and suffered wrong. How these goals could be presented through persuasion and law is really the subject of another lecture. My final comment is on the practicality of the church's teaching on the necessity of pursuing a substantive common good in every society. This teaching doesn't mean that Christians have to engage in utopian political reform. St. Augustine indirectly offers us some timely advice on how to proceed in his reflections on the nature of a republic. In the City of God, Augustine comments on the definition of a republic given by Scipio in Cicero's De Re Republica. Scipio says that a republic is the affair of a people. He then defines people as a fellowship of a multitude united through a consensus concerning right and a sharing of advantage. Augustine then explains that there can be no consensus concerning right without justice. In Augustine's radical formulation, justice requires order in the soul of citizens. Reason rules the vices and in turn is subject to God through the practice of the Christian virtues. If there is no justice in individuals, Augustine says, without doubt, neither is there any in a fellowship of human beings which consists of such men. So without justice so understood, there can be no consensus concerning right and thus no real republic. This seems to be a description of a common good that would be as close to communion with God that one can imagine on this earth. Augustine's second and more realistic definition of a republic is a fellowship of a multitude of rational beings united through a sharing in and agreement about what it loves. It is a better people if it agrees in loving better things, a worse one if it agrees in loving worse things. 
Otherwise stated, there can be various levels of solidarity or forms of a subordinate good in any particular regime. Citizens inspired by a Catholic vision of the common good have a paradigm in Augustine's first definition of a republic by which to take their bearings in prudently working to refine and elevate the agreement about what the political community loves. In our next lecture, we will address the pursuit of the common good through the practice of virtue. And I will try to describe what a number of the cardinal virtues look like. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.